DW. Achim Steiner is a German-Brazilian environmentalist who served a full decade heading up the United Nations Environment Program. After that, the UN brought him on at its Development Program, or UNDP, which he's led since 2017. The basis for our talk was the UNDP's recently released Human Development Report and Human Development Index. And when I spoke with Achim Steiner, the first thing I wanted to know was this question. Is human development inherently connected with economic growth? Well, that certainly has been the paradigm of the 20th century. Economic growth, gross domestic product, uh, per capita income. Those were the major variables with which we try to measure uh, development, progress and success in, in our societies. And clearly, economics as a discipline is an attempt to capture complex reality. But it has also blocked out for far too long some very irrational elements of this measurement. For instance, a large oil spill is very good for economic growth because the cleanup costs a lot of money and that adds to economic GDP. But the destruction that it unleashes on communities, on nature, on species, on ecosystems that do not recover is never captured. Hmm. And that has been one of the blind spots of the very narrow view of economic indices to measure human progress. And this is why much of the discipline of economics, but also sustainable development in recent years, has tried to find better ways to measure human progress. The atmosphere soon can no longer absorb any more carbon emissions without causing major planetary change, species extinction, 7 million people who die prematurely every year, according to the World Health Organization, from indoor and outdoor pollution. That's the price of too narrow a yardstick for measuring and informing development choices. That is at the core of why UNDP at the time introduced the Human Development Index that in addition to income, added health and education as a better way of describing human capabilities and development as freedom and opportunity for everyone. So how can human development be decoupled from environmental damage? In part, that is um, the exploration that we provide in this year's Human Development Report. We call it the next frontier, human development in the Anthropocene. And as always, there is neither a silver bullet nor is there a singular action. So we need to look at, first of all, where are the opportunities for action? Where are the priorities where development can also provide an opportunity and a solution rather than compounding the problem? Clearly, decarbonization which is moving our economies to a low-carbon trajectory into the future and ultimately net-zero emissions is a top priority. We need to address the decarbonization frontier, which means our economies continue to develop, but with less and less emissions. A second area clearly has to be in the way that we also deal with our natural and ecological infrastructure. Much of the industrialization, be it in agriculture, be it in manufacturing and in urbanization, has treated nature really more akin to a sort of mining operation. We need more land, we need to expand, we will extract. I think the point at which we are eroding the very foundations of life, but also of our economies, has reached that tipping point. So investing in nature, land restoration, stopping the destruction of, for instance, forests, but also of our river and water ecosystems, these become integral to a successful economy. 
And ultimately, economics, finance ministries must embrace the notion that we have to include full cost accounting in our national economic statistical systems. Because once the price of losing these environmental assets is actually part of a national balance sheet, very different decisions begin to emerge and much more rational investment and development pathways are um, ultimately self-evident. The report outlines these specific paths to improve human development that are also good for the environment. Can you highlight a couple of cases? Whether it is China, India, which are investing billions in renewable energy infrastructure, or economies such as Denmark and Germany, Denmark already having surpassed the 50% mark of generating its electricity from renewables, Germany being close to 50%. These are major economies also proving that this is a transformation and a transition that is perfectly feasible. And what I thought was interesting in the report was, so not only does it highlight and outline some of these pathways, but it also discusses why some of these solutions are not being implemented. Can you provide a few examples there? The issue of fossil fuel subsidies. We still live in a world where we are spending uh, literally hundreds of billions on subsidizing the use of fossil fuel. And the cost, according to the IMF, is in excess of trillions of dollars a year to our economies of practicing what is essentially a distorted marketplace. You buy a product, the taxpayer is essentially subsidizing the consumption of that product at the cost not only of the taxpayer, but frankly of the current and future generations when it comes, for instance, to carbon dioxide emissions. So we have to create a policy framework where we address, first of all, the distortions in economic policy. That's why I mentioned true cost pricing. Can the political will to put into place these policies be found quickly enough? Political will is a kind of elusive currency. Um, In one sense, yes, we can put the entire onus on um, political leaders. But political leaders, for instance, in democracies, are bound by very short-term sentiments. And so I think, yes, political leaders develop their courage and commitment to act if they believe that in the public and the body politic of our societies, there is support for that. And I think we have just seen that in the United States, but we have also seen it in other countries. We need to, on the one hand, ask of our leaders greater courage and leadership, But at the same time, it is also up to citizens to make this part of what a politician believes is a recipe for success. But at the end of the day, I think it is every citizen who has to embrace, first of all, their responsibility, but also recognize their power to change the politics of the day, where in the midst of COVID-19, in many more of our societies, people are saying, look, we can't just go back to where we were before. So many political leaders, prime ministers, presidents right now, are beginning to talk in very transformative terms. The problem is we have lost so much time. Time is running out, and that is where urgency meets opportunity, and political will is indeed something we should always call for, but in part it also is like a mirror. It shines back on each one of us because we are ultimately the voice of politics as citizens. How can it be seized, an opportunity to make that transformational change? We live in an age where we are consuming multiples of what an average citizen would have consumed 100 or you know, even 50 years ago. And as the Anthropocene narrative shows us, we are hitting planetary boundaries. So we can, in a sense, 
just argue, well, we're going to do the same and simply go on. But that is, you know, a fatalistic way of looking at the future of humanity, because, you know, if we cannot decouple economic growth globally from emissions, we are doomed in many ways in terms of the impacts of climate change becoming not only inevitable, but irreversible. Secondly, I think what is more interesting and perhaps more encouraging is that the economy of tomorrow is clearly going to be one that is going to be more low carbon, less polluting, more resource efficient. And so in an economic planning sense, investing in those sectors, in those technologies that allow you to be competitive in that marketplace that will value the kind of products you produce in terms of either their environmental footprint or whether they are using child labor is part of establishing a competitive strategy, whether at a national economy level or indeed at the level of an individual business or manufacturing business. DW. 